life is too short to do all this. Like there's so much in the world of aviation. There's so much adventure to be had, whether it's instrument approaches to minimums or seaplane ratings or aerobatics. I mean, whatever it is, there's just not enough time or money to do it all. Hi, I'm Paul. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jason Miller from LearnTheFinerPoints.com. Now, Jason is a two-time CFI Pilot of the Year. He has over 20 years of experience as a pilot. In this episode, I talked to Jason about his overall philosophy as a flight instructor, as well as just how he began in aviation. Started at the bottom. I went. I didn't know where to start, so I went to the airport and um, got a job driving a fuel truck. Which, by the way, turned out to be one of the most valuable learning experiences, I think, on my whole journey because it it gives you this sort of bottom up view of the entire industry. So, yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to interview Jason and we were fortunate to get the chance to have a few moments to talk with them. Is how do you promote safety and adventure at the same time? The Finer Points is perhaps best known for their airplane camps uh, where they basically take pilots of all skill levels, usually private and above, out to remote areas and teach them how to enjoy adventure safely. So naturally, I wanted to know from Jason, what was the inspiration behind these camps? And what was the greatest adventure he's ever been on that helped hone his skills as a flight instructor? I was out there in a Cherokee 160 with two other guys, right? So we've got three guys in a Cherokee 160 in the summertime, which was also a mistake. I wouldn't do that again. And uh, read the windsocks wrong. And halfway down the runway, I look at the airspeed and I'm feeling it just didn't feel right and my student tries to rotate and it's just the stall horn screaming at him we're not leaving the ground this is how Jason went from driving the fuel truck at a local Chicago airport to becoming one of the most prominent flight instructors in the United States this is why adventure matters so much to him and the perspective he takes with him every time he steps into the cockpit part of the fun of being a pilot is planning for those risks, mitigating those risks, and then executing some adventure or some flight. Um, some flights are more adventurous than others, but some executing some mission and completing it safely. And that's like a, an incredibly rewarding feeling. This is Adventure Fly. You've done a lot of flying in 20 years. Can you think back to kind of how it started for you? Yeah, sure. I um, I definitely got the bug. So like I, I was that kid that, you know, was always looking up at the sky when the airplanes went by. And uh, at 13 years old, we moved to a new house, which happened to be three miles away from an airport. And I, I literally did. It's like a Richard Bach book or something. I followed the plane through a forest over through a cornfield. <laughs> I mean, I followed this air, these airplanes on final approach until I arrived at a runway and I just started hanging out there on the weekends, but I'm not from a flying family. And, um, you know, my folks assumed I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, or that's the hope they had for me. So it never even seemed possible until, um, at one point in college, I remember telling my dad, you know what, like I, I, I just want to fly airplanes. Like that's what, that's what I'm going to do. And I was fully expecting kickback, you know, for that, but, um, none at all. He encouraged me. He said, go for it. And, uh, and you know, so I was, I had a lot, I had some good encouragement and, um, and I just kind of started at the bottom. I went, I didn't know where to start. So I went to the airport and, um, got a job driving a fuel truck, which by the way, turned out to be one of the most valuable learning experiences, I think on my whole journey. Cause it, it gives you this sort of bottom up view of the entire industry. You know, you're working with like, like I was working at that point, a lot of our charter pilots were like these 
disgruntled Eastern airline guys that were furloughed at 52. And I think that that experience informed my thinking about airlines to some extent, because later on in my career, I decided not to go that route. Um, but you meet, you meet everybody, you meet the, the corporate pilots you meet. I met Phil Boyer flying through one day. I met, um, you know, all sorts of people, uh, Jim Lovell, by the way, I got to pull his Baron out of a hangar one time. <laughs> what was the airport? Um, it was at the time called Powaki, but it's Chicago executive. So in the Midwest and, um, it's a bustling little class Delta, every, you know, a lot of folks flying in and out of there if they don't want to deal with O'Hare and they don't want to be as far South as Midway. So, um, they've got, you know, good runways and you can get G fives in there. Well, that's an interesting, it's an interesting start, right? Like you had the perspicacity to say like, Hey, I want to get into aviation why don't I just fuel people's airplanes as a start and go from there? I guess, was that the thought process? Just getting to the airport, you know, I just wanted to be at the airport. Right. So like I went up there and I didn't have any aviation in my background. So I wasn't, I, I just didn't know what was possible. I just went into Priester aviation, which is a small FBO. They've since sold the signature, but I just said, I, I want a job. Like, what can, where do I start? I didn't know really what line service was, you know, and they uh, kind of looked at me funny, but they said, all right, you know, go do your physical exam and all that and come back. And they sort of showed me the ropes and I, and I, I loved it. I mean, I get there at, at five 30 or six in the morning, I'm an early bird. I'd sump the fuel tanks and uh, you know, the seasons change a lot. Sometimes you have to go out and plow the ramp, uh, all sorts of fun experiences there. And, and, you know, I didn't do it for too long. I, I wouldn't, recommend necessarily making a career out of it but it was uh but it was great i mean it was really great because then i got my private while i was there priester had this old 152 that they let us take for the price of fuel basically if you had your private and uh so for 17 dollars an hour uh, for the summer right before i quit i just took that little 152 everywhere and uh, flew all over the midwest and that was that was good but you know, to, to really answer your question, I don't think it was until I moved to California, which was in August of 98. Um, I had my private already and I got to California and, and I met a different, there was a different thing going on out here because I think it's because of the weather, honestly, like it seems simple. It's, it's a kind of a perfect storm. It's the weather and it's also the sense of adventure that a lot of folks out here have. Uh, so, you know, you can all of a sudden, what happened to me is I met these career flight instructors. I met guys that uh, were, were making a living out of teaching flying. They were in their sixties and, and that's what they did. They used to fly for the Navy, you know, but now they had a trailer at Oakland airport and the pits S2. And, and it's like the old, it's like something out of a magazine, you know, like a Navy flight instructor with, <laughs> with these old biplanes. And you just didn't encounter that stuff in Chicago. Cause there's not, there's, I think it's because there's not enough good flying days out of the year to, to really do that. That's what really in, informed my decision because I met up with uh, a guy named Richard who ended up being my mentor, much older than me, a former Air Force guy. And I'm a pretty adventurous person. So I was, um, you know, I was into sailing. I was living on my boat in, in Berkeley at the time and my expenses were low. And I just, I worked whatever job I could at that point, you know, from construction to waiting tables to whatever, just to spend as much money as I could on flying and living on the boat helped. And I just got you know, certificate after certificate and rating after rating until I was teaching. And, um, I just love, I just love it. You know, I, the airlines never made a lot of sense for me. So I just stayed in teaching and in general aviation. And now it's been, um, I got my CFI in 2003, got my private back in 97. And I just 
I just never stopped. What was it specifically about flying that gave you the feeling of adventure, right? Like many people, they're enamored when they first start flying. You know, you're looking down from the sky and, you know, the feeling, the sensation that you're a bird and the freedom. Uh, but sometimes that can wane as you, you know, continue to get your license or become an owner and start maintaining a plane or what have you, right? But what about aviation provided something of an endless appeal or that just keeps that adventure of feeling new to this day. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's like, like you said up front, I mean, there's the idea that, you know, humans in flight is just pretty adventurous straight away. <laughs> you know, just like looking down on the earth, right. For as long as people have been strapping <laughs> on wings and jumping off churches, right. This has been something we've wanted to do. Um, and now, now we figured it out. And so um, I, it, it was always amazing to me that you could get in a plane as small as something like a 152. Um, you know, people joke, it has a low, BS to fun ratio, right? There's nothing to it. You just, you just get in it and, it and it flies through the air. It's simple. It's reliable. And so, you know, just taking that out to the Delta, um, just out kind of where you guys are now and flying around sunset on a summer night is, is just epic. But I think what really set the hook and to answer your question is getting my tailwheel endorsement and, and, and coming up as a CFI. So here I am, I'm a young CFI. I'm living on a boat. I'm riding my motorcycle to work. I'm flying planes all day. I mean, my whole life felt like an adventure and all my friends, uh, my colleagues had different aspirations. You know, some of them like Ben Freelove was a colleague of mine, went on to be an air show pilot. Another guy wanted to, you know, started a banner towing company. Another guy was flying the seaplane out of Salsalito to build time. And a bunch of them ended up at the airlines. And I think I just realized life is too short to do all this. Like there's so much in the world of aviation. There's so much adventure to be had, whether it's instrument approaches to minimums or seaplane ratings or uh, aerobatics. I mean, whatever it is, there's just not enough time or money to do it all. It's, it, it just felt like a big palette of adventure and you could choose whatever you wanted. So the Finer Points YouTube channel is one of the first places where I personally discovered Jason Miller and their training course, their training material, and eventually their airplane camp. And one of the interesting things that stuck out to me is that they were basically selling adventure and safety at the same time. So for me, it was interesting. And one of the questions I wanted to ask Jason, uh, how do you go from <laughs> fueling airplanes on a tanker to generating what is what has become one of the longest running YouTube slash podcast channels really on the internet. When did the finer points, because that's 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 pretty much your bread and butter at this point, right? The, heading up the finer points. Was that, it was initially a, a podcast that just kind of grew into this YouTube channel slash now adventure camp, but how would you say the finer points started for you? Yeah, I think um, in, in my mind, it started with, with Richard because I was fortunate enough to meet kind of this old uh, crotchety guy who was, you know, had the, the chops to sort of beat me up and teach me things that other folks didn't know. And I fortunately had the patience to take it and deal with it because a lot of my friends didn't. And so I always felt like, man, I'm learning this gold from this guy that I never would learn anywhere else. And I'm developing things on my own. And we thought alike, just really thinking about the finer points. I mean, you know, Richard's personality was I remember the first time I, I had a lesson with him, he called me the night before the lesson, which is something he always did. And, um, you know, I think he had like a cocktail in his hand every night reading the regulations <laughs> or something. Right. And so he would, he told me, he's like, so we got our first lesson tomorrow. We're going out IFR. He's like a uh, quiz for you. How high does the low altitude and uh, uh, root chart go to? And I said, you know, 18,000 feet. And he just goes wrong and hangs up the phone. 
I was like, what? I'm like, wrong, really? And I go run and I check it. And sure enough, it's 17,999 feet. Mm -hmm. right, so that's just kind of like the way the training was. It was all about the finer points. And um, anyway, Richard and I sort of parted ways, of course, over time. And I, I, but I always had that mentality. And then in the Bay Area, it's all tech people. And I'm not a tech guy. I mean, I was, or well, I am now, but I wasn't then. And I, I was living on my boat and riding my motorcycle and flying planes. And I had a student say to me, um, you should do a podcast. Like your training is great. And of course I said, what's a podcast It's 2005. And, um, I looked into it and I realized this is a, this is the only way I'm ever really going to be able to teach forever and not end up living in a trailer at Oakland airport, you know, mm -hmm. is to somehow sort of commoditize what it is I know and what I love to do and what the art of my teaching really is. And podcasts seem like a great place to start. So yeah, we were one of the first or the first flight training podcast, 2005. And then, so the finer points, there, there is that element, obviously, of being exact and being precise. But what I know of you guys, just from your content, you you do seem to promote like an adventure training mentality, right? Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I think that um, you know all pilots to some extent get this, like sort of intuitively, right? right? Like we're we enjoy the risk of it, and, or more appropriately, I think we we enjoy mitigating the risks of it. You know, we're not. It's not, it's not the same kind of risk as like a base jumper, right? We're not climbing El Capitan with a parachute in our hand and launching off a rock and hoping the wind catches the chute, right? But it's at the same time, it's a heavier than air machine and we're going up and uh, we're challenging the elements and, and gravity and all of these other things. And part of the fun of being a pilot is planning for those risks, mitigating those risks, and then executing some adventure or some flight um, some flights are more adventurous than others, but some executing some mission and completing it safely. And that's like a, an incredibly rewarding feeling. And I think, you know, these are like muscles you build over your life as an aviator. You know, when I, for example, I went to Sun and Fun to see Julie Clark fly her last show down there. And we kind of became friends when I was interviewing her on, on YouTube. And if anybody listening doesn't know who she is, she's just a pioneer in the field of, of women in aviation and uh, was an air show pilot for years, just retired, I think two years ago. Anyway, I just remember standing on the flight line at Sun and Fun and watching her come in for her low pass. And I mean, she was like mowing the lawn. Like I was, she was so close to the ground when she came down for that loop that knowing her and caring about her, like my heart kind of skipped a beat. Like, like I hope she got this, you know, mm -hmm. um, that's more risk than I would take on, but it was a risk that she had carefully worked toward her entire career and it was probably extremely rewarding for her to pull that off. Um, and, and that's part of the fun of being a pilot. So, you know, as we've evolved into these, um, adventure trips, which we affectionately call airplane camp, it's kind of the same thing. We go out into these environments and the idea is to teach people how to fly there safely, how to mitigate the risk of, um, potentially being stranded out there for a couple of days, how to deal with, you know, uh, my, or my, my survival partner, Howard calls it, um, the unexpected night out, right. How to deal with what, if you have to be out there for a night, um, how do you arrange search and rescue? How do you file your flight plans? Just carefully mitigating all those risks. How do you do a box Canyon turn if you turn up the wrong Valley and we're not teaching, you know, one way in one way out, like, you know, uh, like rugged backcountry operations. Um, 
we're teaching people how to take quote normal kinds of airplanes out into these environments and fly their family there safely enjoy that wilderness of the united states that is monument valley or wherever else and come home safely i I assume you probably had some training yourself before you became heavily involved or started this right was there a particular adventure that motivated this for you or was there just hey it doesn't seem like there's a lot of training out there that promotes this or really kind of teaches adventure i want to start one myself yeah it was um both of those things what i found happening is like out here in california again a lot of folks feel adventurous and there were all these fly outs is what people would say so i was getting hired to go on all these these fly outs Um, and of course i had my mountain training um i did you know basic mountain checkouts or anything that anybody else would do here in, in in this part of the world but then these owners would hire me there was this thing called the fly out group and it was really informal it was like you know, I don't know, 10, 15 folks, you know, 15 airplanes would say, yeah, we're going to go up to Yellowstone or and then we're going to fly down the Hood River. We're going to end up over there by the Olympic Peninsula, you know, and then we're going to come back down and whatever it was and go out to Colorado, fly at Leadville. And these would go a few times a year and there was no organization really whatsoever. I was just in the plane to make sure that the pilot I was flying with was going to stay safe. But it just kind of, there was one moment where like, and I did dozens of these and we got up to Yellowstone one year and we land the plane and I say to the owner, I was like, so where's the hotel? And he looks at me and goes, well, I didn't book a hotel. He's like, there's no, like, there's no hotel. And I said, I don't know if there's a hotel. Let's call the guy that arranged a trip. So we called the guy that arranged a trip. And he said, you guys didn't book a hotel, you know? So it's just this kind of like, someone needs to, to package this up better. Someone needs to grab the reins and like, you know, make this just real easy. One price, you, you pay us this price. We'll provide everything, the food, the survival kits, the syllabus, everything. And we'll also have a really great time. So um, that's kind of, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Do you have a particular adventure while you were training that stuck out? I mean, Northern California, I mean, name. there's pretty much every landscape or envelope up there, right? But do you have one that sticks out of the top of your mind? It doesn't have to be in California too, but I assume it's probably up there that maybe you can bring to your training as an instructor now. Um, you mean like a close call? Uh, it doesn't have to be, right? I mean, I, I guess what when I say adventure, right, a lot of people think close call, but some people are almost just like, you know, I caught the sunset just at the right time and there's never a sunset, you know, in this part because it's always so cloudy. But but yeah, I mean, what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, there's well, you know, just on the on the on the like on the on that side of things, there's always two experiences and they continue to hit me this way. I mean, one is landing um, on the dry lake beds up here in Nevada. Um, we land at the dead cow dry lake bed on our June mountain trip. And it's just, just incredible. I think it was two years ago. We had an owner bring up a, a Husky on these giant, like tundra tires and we land out there. We, and, but we land everything out there. I mean, SR 22s with wheel pants. I mean, pretty much anything, but this one owner like throws me the keys. He's like, you should take my Husky first for, for a couple laps. <laughs> and it was just like, wow. So, all right, I'll do that. And just flying around, being able to land anywhere like that old aerodrome feeling, you know, where like you just point it into the wind. There's nothing. I mean, you could fly for three miles at five feet off the ground. There's just nothing out there and you can land anywhere. Um, that's always a, a mind blowing experience. And I think also the the canyon flying just north uh, east of Lake Powell. So like when in, in between Moab and Lake Powell um, is just incredible. And it, it, we teach folks how to do it safely so that you're not doing anything super crazy like flying deep in the canyon. But 
Um, you know, you can, you can get just below the, the Canyon Ridge level and still have a lot of outs and, uh, it's just the red rocks, the beautiful water. And, um, it feels like a, like a different planet. Uh, but all the, the like learning experiences, fortunately that I had, I had on those dozens of sort of for hire trips. Like I haven't had knock on wood, haven't had any, uh, close calls on any of the trips that we've run, but you know, there were some experiences early on when I was a much younger instructor and just there to keep those owners safe without any real plan. Um, you know, where, where things got dodgy from time to time. And, you know, the, I think right here in my own backyard now, Blue Canyon, Nyack was one airport that got, got in front of me where I, I was out there and there's a rule of thumb in mountain flying where if, if you have anything uh, less than a 10 knot wind, it's preferable to take off downhill with a tailwind than it is to go uphill into that eight knot headwind or whatever. Um, of course, I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and there's also a, like a, a safety procedure that we teach where if you don't have 70% of your rotation speed by the halfway point of the runway, for whatever reason, you should abort the takeoff. And we hadn't developed that yet either. So I ended up taking off uh, uphill with a tailwind for, for a series of reasons. Um, one is I didn't have those procedures, but the other reason is at mountain airports, often the wind socks don't agree with each other. Um, and I was out there in a Cherokee 160 with two other guys, right? So we've got three guys in a Cherokee 160 in the summertime, which was also a mistake. I wouldn't do that again. And uh, read the wind socks wrong. And halfway down the runway, I look at the airspeed and I'm feeling it just didn't feel right. And my student tries to rotate and it's just the stall horns screaming at him. We're not leaving the ground. Uh, and the forest is coming at us fast. And, um, you know, we got off into ground effect, but I had to take the airplane and nurse it over the tops of these pine trees, cross Interstate 80, and then just sort of dive into the valley of the Tahoe National Forest to get airspeed. I consider myself really lucky that there was, I don't think there was any particular skill that got me over those pine trees. We cleared them by three or four feet, but that could just as easily have been a really bad accident. And uh, I learned a lot. Are you seaplane rated? Uh, no, funny enough, I'm not, but we, I do, I have done a bit of it. Um, I would love to, it's one of, it's just like a tailwheel. When I finally got on the water and, and started training, um, it's just like, why have I waited this long? I mean, this is, it's that epic adventure feeling again, right? Like you're kind of half boat, half airplane. I mean, I'd love to come down and try the icon. That's got to be part of our deal. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. No, I was going to say, cause you had mentioned sailing at the beginning, right? And I can't tell you how many people underestimate, I mean, the A5 for sure, but just being on the water alone, right? Like the, especially if you're, if you're used to being a boater or a sailor, just the flight characteristics when you're on the water, un, it just unlocks a whole new experience that, you know, moments ago you were in the air and you were preparing to land on the water, you know, just like you were, you know, sort of like you're in an airplane, but then you're in this totally new environment and then you're opening the canopy and then you're on the wing, like just from the seaplane perspective, right? Do you... Some pilots, it's intimidating to have to learn a new skill set. I mean, for you, where, where's your head at just out of curiosity? Yeah, it's just sort of that I have too much going on right now, honestly. And I, and I absolutely feel what you just described. Like when I have done uh, seaplane training or float plane training, I'm not even sure what y'all I've preferred, but whatever it is. Um, when I'm flying on the water, it is that perfect marriage of those two things that I love. I mean, I lived on a boat for years. I sailed to Mexico. I, I love being on the water. 
And it is just like that. It's like those two worlds come together. It's an amazing ad adventure. And, and we run a trip in the Pacific Northwest called the Islands of the Pacific Northwest. And we do it out of Orcas Island. And we have um, this great company called Seaplane Scenics flies out and they give all of our uh, customers seaplane time so that everyone can feel what it's like to land on the water. And I'm usually so busy on those trips that I'm the last person. I mean, I'm driving the van back to the, the camp <laughs> ground to you know get people and keeping track on a clipboard who's done it, who hasn't. But by the time I look, pick my head up, James is from Seaplane Scenics is like, all right, well, we're ready to fly back. <laughs> you know, so now I don't do that anymore. I got him. I was like, wait a minute, stop the press. I'm going out so everyone can sit and chill for a minute. Um, and I've got it worked out now that I do get a little bit of time with him each year, but it's just, um, I think, you know, it's one of those things it's still, I still have yet to sort of explore it. Well, it's one of the, like you mentioned, right? Aviation has so much to unlock, you know, I, sometimes you might not be able to, there might be like, you can't do it all. Right. And I think that's one of those things where I think a lot of people, They'd love to do it, but they're still probably honing just their land, you know, the, their land experience, right? So for, as far as um, training people for your adventure trips, is there a particular skill level? I mean, obviously, it's always a great time to get additional training or, or training, right? But is there a particular skill set and experience level that the training is ideal for? Once you've done some cross countries um, as a student, you can potentially come um, but even, you know, so at least a private, I would think somewhere in that range. And when you come with us as a renter, we put you in a Cessna 182 with a CFI in the right seat and two clients, one in the back, one in the front that sort of rotate. And that's awesome. It's great. But you know, the, the power of those trips is so much bigger than, than me, really. It's, it's over the years, I've met these incredible aviators, um, you know, on our staff, guys like Peter Lert, Eric Cope, Howard Donner, Justin Phillipson, Ryan Van Heron. I mean, all these guys, you know, like Peter was a Rutan test pilot back in the day. You know, um, Eric Cope has flown helicopters and airliners and 180s backcountry Idaho. And Justin's a Reno air racer. And Howard is a survival expert and a commercial pilot. And so like you get all these guys together in one spot and, and women too. I mean, it's just, it's expandable depending on how many folks we have coming. But you know, around the campfires at night, if somebody has a question about engines or whatever, I can just grab Justin who just literally built his own engine and raced it at Reno, <laughs> you know, and ask him what he thinks about it. Or, you know, Peter Lert, who's, you know, working with Bert Rutan on his new seaplane design, right? I can ask him what he thinks about, about ditching an aircraft. So for private owners, I've had, this is probably the most rewarding experience for me is some guys will, like my favorite part of this is people will call me and they'll say, Hey, I have a Bonanza. I just bought, you know, a year ago, I'm looking to do one of your trips. Well, you know, we've got a guy like Mike Corklin who has more time in Bonanzas alone than I have in my logbook period, you know, like Mike's 15, 20 years, my senior. And, um, I put Mike in that plane. And I remember one year, a guy on the first day on Friday lands, comes back to dinner, pulls me aside and says, those first three touch and goes that I just did with Mike were worth the entire price of this trip. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> what did he tell you? <laughs> Secrets, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, so that, right. It's just, well, people that have had that much time in the seat, you know, and, and done that many things. Um, so really it's for everybody. It's, I wouldn't want to see somebody who's like pre-solo come because I think a 182 would be too much and so much of the trip would go over their head. Um, but we've had everybody from cross-country students, people that are in the cross-country phase headed toward their check ride, 
everybody from that level up right up through very, very experienced private owners. Do you have an approach, if you will, towards how to fly low safely? And, and, and I mean, it's broad, right? But I mean, like, do you guys even teach that? Is there a component to your course that teaches that low altitude flying? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely on the canyons trip is we, we do a lot of that. Um, not so much on the on the mountain trips, depending, but um, I always, some pilots take this kind of, I call it the ostrich approach to risk management where they think, well, geez, I really hope that doesn't happen and just sort of stick their head in the sand about it, right? Um, I don't, I don't really like that. I think that it's fine to sometimes fly without an out, but when you don't have an out, you should be aware that for this short period of time, I, I don't have an out. I would be really in a bad situation if something happened here, as long as you're sort of conscious of that. Um, and when you're flying low, I think if you've vetted it carefully, if you've really looked over, like if it's the Bonneville salt flats or if it's over water, right, there's no going to be no power lines. Uh, it's a wide body, like a huge lake or something like that. And you've got a seaplane like an A5. I mean, I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with flying low. It's, you know, low altitude is about, um, what's the regulation say, right? An altitude at which in the event of an engine failure, you could maneuver to a safe landing. If that, if you, if you can, then, then you've got that base covered. And if you're confident that you're not going to hit something, right? Like there's not a power line crossing you can't see or something like that, like the dead cow dry lake bed or Bonneville salt flats or a big wide lake, then I don't see really anything wrong with flying low at all. It's, it's, quite fun. Um, perhaps like a little riskier to maneuver low, but I think the biggest risks are engine failures and collision with something you can't see. I assume you have strict minimums as to will and, and, and what you won't do as a pilot in the cockpit. Uh, how did you learn to identify what your safety envelope is while flying, particularly for someone who admittedly, self-admittedly loves adventure. Yeah, I think uh, it's, there's definitely things I won't do. And I think you have to think those things through ahead of time and have very, very objective rules about them. Um, and it doesn't have to make a lot of sense. I think the biggest thing is uh, you've thought it through ahead of time from the comfort of your own you know, safety, wherever that is, you're sitting on your sofa at night or driving in your car, whatever. You've thought it through without any pressure to fly. Um, and my one rule about it is you cannot change those things on the day you're flying. Even if you change them, even if they are going to be changed forever, you can't change them the day you want to use them. That's not allowed. Um, and you know, like some, so for me, a lot of those are weather related, you know, like for, I fly a lot of IFR. I'm fortunate to live in California, so I don't ever fly IFR in an airplane without de-icing equipment. If the freezing levels are at or below the MEAs, I just won't do it. Right. That's one adventure I don't really want. Um, and it's not like I've never been in a light airplane without de-icing equipment gathering ice. I have, and that's precisely why I don't want to be there again. On the other hand, guys like Justin, I was talking about, he's a Reno air racer. So he has no issue building his own engines and building and fabricating his own airplane and, and flying them at low altitude around pylons. He has no issue with that whatsoever, uh, but he doesn't do backcountry off airport landings. He just doesn't do them. And I mean, if there's a strip there, he'll do it, but he's not, you're not going to catch him just landing on a mountaintop somewhere. And I remember asking him like, Justin, how come you don't do that? You know, you certainly could, like, you've got all the skills. This isn't like a, I'm not good enough to do that kind of thing. And he's just like, he's like, oh, I thought it through. He's like, you know, I mean, what if I hit a stump and I break my plane and what if I hit this thing or I go in a hole and he's like, and I, you know, he's like, I just, I don't need it. So I don't do it. I don't like, that's something I won't do.
So again, it doesn't have to make a ton of sense. Like you can have the skills to do something. It's just, if you've thought it through ahead of time, that's the key. They should be very objective. Like I black and white, I do it or I don't. And, um, you can't change it on the day you fly. As far as the A5, is there a feature or an aspect of it that really intrigues you that when you hop in the cockpit and go flying, you really just want to see what this is like in first person? Is it a multitude of things? Is it anything? What it, what intrigues you the most that when you do fly, you'd be the most interested in experiencing? Um, Gosh, that's hard to say. I think that really just the perspective, it just looks like such a, well, first of all, it's such a beautiful airplane, but I, it looks like when you're sitting in it that... It's got such an extraordinary view. Um, and I honestly, talking about flying low, I would like to get out there and fly low over water. <laughs> sure. I enjoy flying low. That sounds like fun. And uh, that is an experience I'd love to have in that plane. All right. So I'd like to thank Jason for joining us in the Adventure Flying Podcast. Again, if you'd like to learn more about the finer points, go to learnthefinerpoints.com. They're on YouTube. They're on Facebook. You know, all the places, the podcast, again, it's one of the original aviation podcasts out there. And if you'd like to learn more about IconAircraft.com or IconAircraft, you can go to IconAircraft.com. Learn more about the A5. We were talking about it towards the end. So if this is your first time being introduced to the airplane, we encourage you to go to IconAircraft.com. And uh, hopefully, yeah, we'll be able to get Jason up soon. We'll, we'll have an update and and uh, hopefully we'll be able to share some of um some of his feelings and his reaction to the flight. So until then, everybody, thank you for listening. I'm Paul. Have a good one and take care.